Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, July the 8th. 2022. It is currently 2.30 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. And I cannot speak for you, but one of the thi- one of the things I absolutely love about this podcast is its unpredictability. We really never know sometimes from episode to episode what's going to happen, and we never really know where things are going to go, right? It's not like we just... We're not we're not one of those podca- podcasts that really just kind of has like I hate to say it it's just it's the same thing over and 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 you kind of know what to expect from day to day. I think for this podcast you never really know what to expect. And what I also love is but based on the way we kind of do these broadcasts we, that you know you we can be going in one direction, and just because something happens, we end up turning and going in a completely different direction. And I like that because when I woke up this morning and thought about doing live broadcast, I would have had no, I I could not have predicted in a million years that I would find myself at 2.31 p.m. today saying, hey guys, we're about to begin a series on Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that uh, of all the things I could have predicted where this podcast may be going today, it wouldn't have been, hey, we're going to begin a new series on one verse of Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, or we'll throw in verse 11, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. I, I Maybe we'll throw in verse 12. Who knows? Maybe we'll throw in the entire chapter. Again, I don't know, but I, I, I could not have predicted that. But I love that. I I, I hope, I, I think some people don't like it, right? They kind of, you know, I, let, let me try to explain it this way. If um, I listen to a lot of talk radio, not because I always agree with their perspectives, I just like hearing, I just like hearing people broadcast, right? I like thinking about someone sitting in a studio behind a microphone talking about whatever. And I just know that if, you know, if you uh, take, say, your basic AM talk radio station in whatever city you live, you're going to hear, basically, you're going to hear Glenn Beck, the new uh, Rush Limbaugh show, which is what Buck Saxton, and I can't remember the other uh, guy's name, who took over for Rush Limbaugh after he passed. Uh, You're going to get Sean Hannity, Mark Levine. It depends on on what station you're listening to. But you kind of know what you're going to get every single day. You're going to get some commentary on the news, right, from a very, 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 very right-leaning perspective. There may be some other programs that may give you some commentary on the news from a left-leaning perspective. But it's kind of the same thing. Day in, day in. And, and And I often will listen to these programs like, I wonder if they ever get tired. It's just basically talking in many cases. I mean, oh, yeah, there, there may be a new news story, but they're really kind of approaching it the same way every single day. And it's just like, that's got to get frustrating. That's got to get tiring. And I, and, I, and I subscribe to, you know, thousands of podcasts. And sometimes I'm like, do they ever want to change things up even a little bit? So what I love about this is we never know what to expect. And I think sometimes you don't know what to expect. And at least I think that that's one pot. Look, of all the mistakes I make, of all the weaknesses of this podcast, I think that that's its strength. You may disagree, but I think it's that is its strength. So 
How did we get here? How, how did we end up <laughs> at 2.30 something in the afternoon here in the middle of West Texas? How did we end up beginning a series on Philippians chapter 3, verse 10? Well, it started innocently enough, right? We, we have a series going on, 30 scriptures in 30 days, right? Based off a book written by Charles Stanley many years ago. And what we've been doing is looking at the principles, these, thir- these 30 principles he gives, and the scriptures supposedly where he found these principles. And what we've noticed is there are a massive disconnect. So what we've been doing just to have a little bit of fun is just I'm going live on the air, opening the book, and then just in real time looking at the scripture and trying to figure out not how it's connected to the principle, because in many cases it's not connected to the principle Charles Stanley has given, but just like what do we do with these verses? Some of them have been, have been just really easy to come up with all kinds of principles, and it's been fun. But today, it was Philippians 3, 10 through 11. And once we, I started reading it and trying to figure it out live on the air, we realized these verses present some serious issues and trying to figure them out and understand them. So we worked on it for over an hour, and then finally I'm like, you know what? We're going to have to work on it some more. And that gave rise to this series. So here's what we're going to be doing in this series. We're going to be reviewing sermons on Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. These sermons are chosen at random. In fact, in this particular case, I had someone else pick. I said, I told, I asked someone else, find find some sermons. And they just randomly sent me a, a, a link. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to grab the first one. Not, And of course, we're not listening to it in advance. And so what we're going to do is hear other people struggle through it. And we're going to be like, well, wait a minute. What about this? What about that? Oh, that sounds good. I don't know about that. And we're just going to have a fun time hearing a lot of teaching on Philippians 3.10. And when it's all said and done, we'll try to, we'll try to come to a conclusion about what we can, what we possibly think about it. Also, after the uh, broadcast I did earlier today, Someone presented kind of a perspective on Philippians 3.10 that I had not thought of, and I'm pretty blown away by it because I think it, it's, it, I think it's, put it this way, it's a very good idea that should be considered, even though it seems like many of the commentaries didn't really go in this direction, but a lot of times in hermeneutics, this is very important, a lot of times in hermeneutics, when you're looking at a passage, Yes, you may have commentaries and all of the different ideas, but I think in hermeneutics, one one of the things you have to do is set aside all of the other ideas, look at the passage, and sometimes you have to just throw out a hypothesis, throw out a theory, throw out kind of what what you, you think is possible, and then you work on it, then you kind of test it, and then you come to a conclusion. We're very much right now in our look at Philippians 3.10, way back here in the the, the trying to figure it out, creating an hypothesis, creating some theories about how to interpret it. And we have not drawn any serious conclusions yet because we have to do a lot of testing. And one thing that you can do is when you come to a conclusion is just start listening to as many sermons as you can to see if anyone else sees something similar or see if you can come up, if someone else has a better option. Because you always want to be open to what, how, what's the best way to interpret it. So let's pick up our Bibles, if you can. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I'll be reading from the King James. I'm in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. That's why I'm looking at it going, that makes absolutely no sense, okay? 
not or not makes no sense in the sense of what I'm looking for. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Here we go. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul, writing to the church, Philippi, that I may know him. That refers to Jesus Christ. If you go back to verse 9, we can clearly establish that because the last You'll, I'll just read all of verse 9. And be found in him, again, referring to Christ. Look at the end of verse 8, where Christ is the last word used. And verse 7, Christ is the last word used in verse 7. So 7, speaking about Christ. 8 talks about Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, to be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. All right. So this Paul is establishing, hey, in a sense, I used to cling to these works of righteousness, these, these righteous deeds, these religious acts to make me or to, to declare myself righteous. And I realize that I'm going to throw all of that away, declare, basically see all of that as being as worthless as dung so that I may have the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to me, which is given to me by faith or imputed to me by faith. And I'm not going to, and I can't bring all of this man, this fleshly righteous deeds to Christ because he doesn't accept them because my fleshly righteous deeds are nothing more than filthy rags. So I, I throw all of that out. I consider all, I, I'm willing to lose all of that, consider it dung so that I can have the imputed righteousness of Christ. All right. So we, we've got that. That makes perfect sense. Then verse 10, that I may know him. Right? This is the idea to know Christ. I, I have his righteousness, right, that, that imputed to me, not infused, imputed. We, we want to make sure we draw a massive distinction between imputed righteousness and infused righteousness. Infused righteousness makes you a Roman Catholic. Imputed righteousness is, well, the right way of understanding it because that is not a part of Roman Catholicism. That uh, that's, comes from the Protestant Reformation. Right? So we've talked about that in so many different podcasts. So Paul wants to know Christ, and he wants to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. Now, there was lots of questions we raised here. Now, wait a minute, okay? Now, how do we understand this power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering? Do we understand this in some experiential way, right? Like, I come to faith in Christ— and then I then I decide, you know what? Now that I've come to faith in Christ, I want to experience the power of the resurrection and I want to participate in his sufferings in some kind of an experiential way. Well, what does that look like? How do I how do I experience that power? How do I experience that suffering? Is there something I do? What does that look like? What what are some problems with that? Well, if we look at this from a very experiential way, well, then you begin to raise questions. Well, wait a minute. If I have the power of the resurrection inside of me in some practical way, then shouldn't this lead to like maybe sinless perfection? Like what does that and what does it mean to to suffer? So we try to look at it from an experiential way. We read a lot of commentaries that didn't really help us much. In other words, they said words. That sounded spiritual, but they were very vague in exactly what it, how it works, what it looks like, what it does, what it doesn't do. They were very, it was missing a lot of detail. So then we started looking at it. Well, maybe we could look at it this way, that I, that 
the power of the resurrection refers to justification and uh, regeneration. And the fellowship of his suffering refers to sanctification. In other words, when becoming a Christian, I experience justification and regeneration, and that's the power of resurrection, right? And then the fellowship of his suffering is that sanctification, right? So basically justification and regeneration is resurrection, and then sanctification is the fellowship of a suffering because now I have to die to self, take up my cross, uh, deny self, and no longer follow self. So there's suffering in that. So they're like, okay, that could make maybe a little bit of sense, all right? But then here's the problem. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Verse 9 talks about basically having faith. Verse 10 we get into an order of salvation concept here because we experience the power of the resurrection at the moment of salvation, right? And no matter if you go with regeneration precedes faith or faith comes before regeneration, the minute you exercise faith, boom, you've experienced the power of resurrection because you've been justified and you have been regenerated. You have been born again. You've experienced a spiritual resurrection, all right. So no matter which way you do the order of salvation, this almost reads as if you have faith. And then Paul's like, now, since I have faith, now I have a goal to know the power of the resurrection. Well, you are, you just experienced that. So how can it be a goal after faith? See, that's, that's kind of like, that's a problem. Now the, the next one makes sense. After faith, now I want to, I want to participate in the fellowship of his suffering. Now I'm going to seek to take up the cross. But the first one, how can it come after? So there's kind of an ordering problem that we, we ran into. Now, someone suggested that the way we know this, that what Paul is talking about is that he wants to know those two things the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering in the most intimate, most real way possible. And I think we can argue that as we are living and breathing on on this planet, in the flesh, we will never truly intimately know and experience the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. We can never truly experience that. So they suggested this that we will truly experience these things when we are resurrected. Because when I am resurrected, bodily resurrection, I have a glorified body, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more sin, that, that I truly experience the power of the resurrection in the most intimate, glorious way. And then the fellowship of the suffering we typically understand that to mean, oh, that I participate in the suffering. But we saw that John Gill threw kind of an interesting concept. No, maybe this is not that we participate in the suffering, but we participate in the fellowship of the suffering and the, and the fact that we, we benefit uh, by the benefits of his suffering. And we're never truly going to understand and experience the benefits of his suffering or the power of his resurrection until we are resurrected and we stand in before his presence, then guess what? I now truly understand the benefits of his suffering. I'm truly now a partaker. He suffered 
And now all of that benefit of that suffering, I, I in a sense, my fellowship in his suffering is me experiencing the true benefits that come from it. And what are the benefits of his suffering? Well, he died to pay for sin. His death forgives me of all my sin. So guess what happens in the resurrection? I have, I experienced the power of the resurrection because now I, I, I have a new body. I'm in the presence of God. I'm experiencing eternal life. All my, I, I, all my sins are gone. There's no more of a sinful nature. All my sins are forgiven. I, I'm in the presence of God. Everything, everything is completely changed. So they suggested that maybe what Paul is saying is, look, now that I'm set, now that I place my faith, I want to know this and his, and his desire to know it means he's looking towards that ultimate resurrection, that ultimate experience that will happen at the end of our life. Now, there's much to work out with that concept. And I'm not saying it's perfect, but some of the others lead us to many questions. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat that concept numerous times, but I'm just going to leave it there for now. That's just like a little bit of a that's just kind of a, a little bit of a preview of what we're trying to work on. I gave you some of the other possible options. Maybe you get it. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't understand the order problem. But at least I, I, I'm just trying to throw these out there at you. And what we're going to do is we're going to just start reviewing sermons. We're just going to start reviewing sermons. This is what the person did. They went to the Sermons 2.0 app. And they, I think they just typed in Philippians 3.10. And then they just grabbed a series on Philippians 3.10 and said, here you go. I think it's four sermons. They gave me the one specifically on Philippians 3.10 and the fellowship of suffering. I'm going back to the first one and we're just going to go in order and we're going to start reviewing them. This may take weeks to get through, but I can promise this. When this is over, you're going to have heard so many concepts and ideas about Philippians 3.10 that by the time this series is finished, you're going to know more about Philippians 3.10 than you have ever known in your entire Christian life. I can guarantee you that. Am I guarantee guaranteeing that you're going to come with a, we're going to end this with a definitive conclusion? I cannot. Because the one thing I've learned in all of my schools that I've attended and degrees I've obtained and all of my years of studying hermeneutics, the one thing I know is many, time in herme many times in hermeneutics, you end with, I don't really know. Preaching always covers that up. It's one of the things I hate about so many sermons is they love to cover up the difficulty of the passage because I've got to present the sermon and everybody wants that three points. They want it nice and organized and, and they may say, oh, there's some disagreements, but they always re reassure you this is the way to understand it and they don't want you confused. And I hate sermons at the expense of actual studying of the text. I say you stand in behind the pulpit and go, guys, this passage is difficult. We're going to look at 15 different possible ways of looking at it. And when we're done, we may not have an answer. So these are not going to be nice little, well put together sermons. These are going to be us sitting here in this church today, working through the text. The problem is most people don't like that and we'll end up leaving your church and go find another one. But I think there has to be churches out there that offer that kind of an alternative. So that's what I try to do, not only at the church, but right here in this podcast. So that's 19 minutes. I know that's a long time, but are you ready? Here's the first sermon, randomly chosen on sermon, on, for using the Sermons 2.0 app, looking up Philippians 3.10. I have no idea what's going to be said. 
Who knows? This may give some perspective I've never thought of. This may agree with one of the perspectives I've already mentioned. It may be good. It may be bad. The goal of this is not trying to humiliate or, criti- or, or to judge. It's, it's literally going, okay, what do you have? What do you have? And then just adding it to our, our kind of like working through the method of we've got some hypotheses here. We've got some theories here. Now we're at, we'll, we'll consider what you have to say and then see if that adds any more to it. So here we go. In the New Testament there, Philippians. And returning, please, to the third chapter, Philippians chapter 3. And we'll read the first 14 verses of Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse number 1 and then reading down to verse 14, Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit, And rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, were off he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss, yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Just ending. Okay, so he's read a, a good a good portion of this, which is always a good thing to do. Um, well, I don't know which direction he's going to go with this. 
there are some, I mean, when he reads it, as soon as he starts reading it, there's there's things that are immediately already jumping out at me, but I'm going to try to set those aside. We're just going to try to figure out how he's going to handle primarily verse 10, and because clearly there's a lot of questions about is verse 10 connected with verse 9, because this gets into that whole order salutis, the order of salvation, where we can get into a whole discussion about faith before regeneration, regeneration before faith. I don't know if he's even going to get into any of that. I think I think it's a question that has to be raised. We'll see if he goes there. Um, it does he does he just like verse nine? Well, I mean, in the King James, verse nine doesn't end in a period, but of course, the the punctuation wasn't in the original. So many different questions that we could have here, but we'll just see where he goes. He's read it. Now let's see what he does. The reading of God's word here at Philippians three. And verse number 14. We're coming tonight to look at this great book of Philippians. It's a wonderful epistle. And the church at Philippi was a source of real joy to the Apostle Paul. There were churches that Paul wrote to and visited that had many problems. And it is true that there's certainly no perfect church. And the church at Philippi certainly wasn't a perfect church. But it was a church that was very close to the heart of the Apostle Paul. It didn't have the same level of carnality that the church at Corinth had. It didn't have the problems of false doctrine that the church at Galatia had. It was a church that that Paul had much confidence in because the people in that church were very spiritual in their outlook. If you turn to chapter 1, verse number 3, you see here the love that Paul had in a very special sense for these believers at Philippi. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And then in verse number seven, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, insomuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Christ. So this was a church that Paul loved and longed for and also rejoiced in. And writing this letter to the church at Philippi, his chief desire is that he might draw out their hearts after Christ. It's a, it's a letter of four chapters, and each chapter is full of the doctrine of our Savior. Irving Jensen, in his great book, The Survey of the New Testament, divides and outlines the book this way. He says, chapter 1 speaks of Christ, our life. Chapter 2, Christ, our pattern. Chapter 3, Christ, our goal. Chapter 4, Christ, our sufficiency. Okay, now that's interesting. Borrowing from Irvin Jensen, which I had to use that book in uh, Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, for my, I think, New Testament survey and Old Testament survey, if I remember correctly. Um, I always try to to remember all the books I use in in all the different schools. But I I think it's interesting that he says that chapter 3, Christ is our goal. 
And the reason I think that's interesting is some people, some translations translate Philippians 3.10. In fact, I have a Bible right here. If I can find it here, Philippians chapter 3. And we talked about this in the last live broadcast where this we, we stumbled upon all of these issues and start and, and now which led us to where we are today. Philippians 3:10. Here we go. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. That that translation turns Philippians 3:10 as Paul's like, hey, this is my goal. This is what I want to experience. And again, is, does he want to, is this some experiential thing that we happen now or as we kind of, I kind of gave a theory a little bit earlier, is this something that his goal is to truly experience this and we're never going to truly experience it until our, our bodily resurrection. So uh, I just inter- think that's interesting because that may add to the idea of seeing verse 10 as Paul saying, this is my goal. This is what I want to know. This is, th- does he want to know it? Is that a knowing in an experiential way, which I believe the Greek word would lead us to that conclusion? Lots of questions. Just interesting that we have at least one book that when outlining Philippians sees Philippians 3 as making Christ our goal. That, that, does that help? Only time will tell. And truly Christ is all of those things to all of God's people. He is our life. He is our pattern. He ought to be our goal And he certainly is our sufficiency in all things. And one of the themes that run throughout this letter is that theme of Christian joy. Chapter 4, verse 4 very simply says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. But tonight we're going to think especially upon chapter 3 and the verse number 10. A golden text for the Christian. Okay, good. This is what we want. We want to focus on Philippians 3.10. Now, I think what's cool is it appears that he dedicates four sermons to verse 10. That's awesome because that gives us plenty of material to consider and then contrast with our own ideas and your own ideas. If you're listening to me live using the Spreaker app, by all means, you can jump into the chat. If you're not listening to us via the Spreaker app, you can always email me, newsif at yahoo.com, and you can do, well, your own, you can throw on your own ideas, your own theories, um, and and we will, I will consider them along with all the others. And and, and remember, the way it works is with theories, we, we have them, we test them. And then we draw. That's a, uh, then we try to draw a conclusion at the end. That is a very major part of hermeneutics. Is you're like, okay, what do I do with this? All right. Well, what about this? And you just, it's almost like having a whiteboard, right? And you throw out the idea, and then you're like, okay, all right, that's a good one. Okay, that's a good one. All right, we got four ideas here, everyone. Okay, now why? Why? What? Ju- justify your reason. Okay, now we have the justif- We have the theory. We have the justifications. We test each justification, and then we're going to probably start eliminating things on the board. that That's just not going to work, and we may be left with two or three. It's perfectly okay to do that if you truly want to do biblical hermeneutics in any meaningful way. It's not always simple or easy. Just so many pre- people think it is because of, of so many sermons cover up the hermeneutical sh- difficulties that a text may present, and so we're not, we're going to 
we're going to listen to sermons, but we're going to continue to pull the curtain back going, no, 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 no. Look what's back there. See, see that? That's a mess. That's what really this text leads you to, no matter how much we want to dress it up for a sermon, all right? So, but we'll see where he's going to go. I'm glad he's done a good job. He's given us a little background. He's doing all the things that you should do, placing it in some kind of context. All right, how is he going to handle verse 10? How is he going to handle verse 10? Inquiring minds want to know. Here we go. Paul's holy ambition that I may know him that is, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Now, we could spend a lot of time thinking about the context of this verse. The first number of verses, the first nine verses in Philippians chapter 3 are well worthy of our study. We might refer to some of them tonight, but I would encourage you to study them for yourself. What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. And here's a man that is Christ enthroned in his heart. Christ is in his rightful place in the life of the Apostle Paul. Everything that he lived for before, whether it was legitimate or whether it was illegitimate, whether it was secular or whether it was sinful, Paul says, in the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, it's all worthless. It's all but... Let me say this. Whether it was secular, whether it was sinful, whether it was spiritual, whether it was righteous, all of that, his righteousness, his obedience to the law, sin, spiritual, secular, Righteous, religious, he, all of it is, is considered dung and thrown aside so that he can obtain the only righteousness that matters, which is the, the, the righteousness that we have, we have by faith that is imputed to us, not infused, imputed. I have to continue to draw that distinction because so many times those within the evangelical world almost speak of in justification, we, we receive a righteousness inside of us. No, it is imputed to my account and I'm declared to be righteous even though I am unrighteous. Practically, I'm unrighteous. Positionally, I'm perfectly righteous. So he, it's not just secular and sinful. It's secular, spiritual, sinful, religious. It's all kinds, everything. He's like, it's all dung. I need the righteousness that is obtained by faith which is an alien righteousness to me, it's outside of me, it's imputed to my account. And God considers me righteous, even though practically I am not. Very important, absolutely essential, one, to distinguish us from Roman Catholicism, and two, to having a correct understanding of Christianity, which is so confused by many evangelicals, because even though they want to claim they're not Catholic... In many cases, it's very much Catholic. And I, and I say that as someone who attended a Catholic university to, to work on a degree in Catholic theology, even though I wasn't Catholic, but just so that I, when I could understand Catholicism better, and the more I studied Catholicism, the more I would look at evangelical preaching, I'm like, that's basically Catholicism. You're basically teaching an infused righteousness. So yes, those first part of, of Philippians 3 is so important. Because it really establishes, hey, this stuff is gone. This is what I need. I need a righteousness that comes by faith. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's essential. Now, 
The question is, how is that connected to our verse in question, verse 10? My desire is now, he says, that I may win Christ, that at the last day I might be found in him, not having any righteousness of my own, but I might have this wonderful righteousness which is found through faith in Jesus Christ, that I may know him. Now this verse divides nicely into four parts. We're going to consider the first part tonight, that I may know him. And then in the weeks to come, we'll consider the second part, the power of his resurrection. Then the third part, the fellowship of his sufferings. And then the fourth and final part, being made conformable unto his death. That's, that's an interesting outline. It does naturally fall into that, all right? Because if you look at Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, number one. Number two, the power of his resurrection. Number three, fellowship of his sufferings. Number four, be made conformable unto his death. Now, the problem is here, now we got to be careful, all right? Hermeneutical warning, all right? Hermeneutical warning, all right? I don't have a siren. I need a sound of a siren here. I don't have, I, what do I have? What, what, what sound effects do I have? Warning, warning, warning. Does that work? Does, does lightning? I, I don't know. Does that work? It's not the best, right? Okay, so we have kind of a lightning strike here of a warning, and here's what can happen. You can have a verse. I'm not saying he's going to do this, but you have to be careful because what sometimes pastors will do, especially when you're young, a young pastor, and you first start learning to preach, right? Because you always got to have that uh, that very good outline for your sermon, right? You got to have three or four points, right? You got to have that, you know, especially if you're going to put it up on a PowerPoint slide or a big screen, you know, you got to have those points, right? Are you going to put it in the bulletin? People love that and everybody wants to write down those points. So I may know him, power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings and made conformable unto his death. And if you're not careful, you just break down each point. And so you're like, what does it mean to know Jesus? And you just kind of go on a sermon about knowing Jesus, the power of his resurrection. What is the, what is the power of his resurrection? What is the power? And you just start talking about the power of the resurrection and then fellowship of his suffering. How did Jesus suffer? Okay, and you just kind of, you almost forget, wait, how does the verse fit together in the context? You almost forget the verses around it. You almost forget exactly what the verse means because you so break down the individual parts. In other words, you sacrifice the meaning of the verse so that you can preach the individual points. Sometimes the focus on the individual points blinds us to the meaning of the verse. I'm not saying that's what's getting ready to happen. I'm saying that I, whenever I see a verse broken down like that, I know it's easy to do. And so I've broken down verses like that. And then I'm like, whoa, man, I broke that down so good. And then when I go back and listen, I'll be like, but wait a minute, I sacrificed really the meaning of the verse so that I had, that I could give these sermons on these individual parts. And it wasn't my intention but you just like 45 minutes on what it means to know Jesus, 45 minutes on the power of his resurrection, 45 minutes on suffering, 45 minutes on being conformed to his death. And you're like, okay, but what does that mean for Philippians 3.10? What, what does that mean? You, you've broken them in such individual sections. I'm a little worried because he's going to break these into four different sermons. 
Is, is, that, is that what's getting ready to happen? If so, that it's going to be a good lesson in hermeneutics. I hope that's what, what's going to happen. I'm hoping that he will continue to place them together so that we get the four. In other words, he's like, here's the four puzzle pieces. And we're like, oh, okay, see that one? And then at the end, he puts it all together. And then we're, and then at the end, we're all going to be like, ooh, oh, wow, that's amazing. I'm hoping that's what happens. But I'm concerned. I'm concerned. But I could, I, but I don't know. That's the whole thing about doing sermon reviews because I don't, I never know what's getting ready to happen. So here we go. We may get a clue before this one is over. It ought to be the desire of every Christian that they can re echo this verse in their hearts and desire to know the fulfillment of it in their lives. So the first. Okay, now hear that. There's kind of his thesis. There's kind of the thesis statement, right? Because I, whenever I listen to a sermon, I try to determine the thesis statement. Here's the thesis statement. This verse should be the goal of every Christian that we really experience this in our life. Right? That, that's, that's really making this a very experiential thing. Not happening after death. No, in this life. So it should be your goal, number one, to know him. Number two, to experience the power of his resurrection. Number three, the fellowship of his sufferings. And number four, to be made conformable unto his death. So this should be the goal. So this is not referring to power of the resurrection, is not referring to justification and regeneration. The fellowship of his suffering is not me uh, or not experiencing benefiting from his suffering that to, to be the fellowship with his suffering is I'm benefiting from it. In other words, in the forgiveness of sins and all of that, that no, this is a goal. You become saved. And then you're like, what is my goal in life to know him, to experience the power of the resurrection, to be a fellowship of his suffering and to be conformable, um, to be made conformable unto his death. So this becomes the goal of the Christian life. Now that sounds good. That preach is good. You know why that preach is good? Because preachers love when you can make it. We love to preach where we can say, here's something you can do. Here is a goal. Here are four steps. Here are four things you should try. We like, because that makes it practical. It makes it applicable. And people love that. All right. That's because then people feel like, oh, I got something out of sermon. When sometimes you just hand them some big, you know, theological theory they're like, I don't, I don't really know. Did I really get anything out of that? But if you can go, oh, there's four things I'm going to work on this week. I'm going to work on knowing him. I'm going to work on experiencing the power of his resurrection. I'm going to work on be. Then you got four things. So that's kind of his thesis is that this is a goal. All right. Now the knowing him. Okay. How? Well, let, let's just see where he goes with this. part of the verse tonight, quite simply, that I may know him. Paul's holy ambition, knowing Christ. Now, Paul knew Christ already, probably knew Christ better than anybody else in the face of the earth whenever this letter was written, maybe with the exception of John the Apostle, but Paul knew Christ. Oh, now, wait a minute. Now, this is important. When Paul writes this, he already knew Christ better than any person on earth. Now, does that mean Paul is saying he already knows him better? I need to know him 
more in a practical way? Or is Paul's goal to know him? And, and how does he know him? By, by the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of suffering and made conformable to his death. How can you truly know these things? In this life? Or is he saying his ultimate goal is to know this in this most, the fullest way? And that would be in, well, when Paul experiences resurrection, then all of these things will be, then he will truly know him. Can we truly know him? Especially if you think the knowing here, the knowing of him is really defined by the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of suffering, and be made conformable unto his death. Now he's breaking these four separate, but what if the knowing him is really explained in the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of suffering, and conformable to his death? And then how do we truly know that in an intimate way? Is it, well, not until we experience our resurrection, our actual resurrection, where we have a glorified body? Or is he just going to say, no. So number one, I'm going to know him. And that and that's different than the power of the resurrection. It seems like he's going to separate them. Well, if he already knows Christ better than any person on the earth, well, then what kind of knowledge is this? Like, I've got to understand what kind of knowledge this is referring to. Deeply. It wasn't that he didn't know Christ. But the thought here is that he might know him in a deeper and in a fuller way. That I may know him. This text of scripture, this phrase tonight that I may know him, I believe tonight speaks to us of seven things. First of all, it speaks to us of majesty. Paul says that I may know him. The central person in this verse is not Paul, but it's Christ. Do you see what's happening? This is just going to turn into almost like a topical study. It has the appearance of an exegetical verse by verse, but it's really becoming a topical study. Topic number one, to know him. What does it mean to know him? Well, it speaks of majesty. Wait wait a minute. I'm still trying to understand how does Paul know him in relation to the rest of the verse? Nope. Let's forget that. We're going to focus on this. It, see, it's almost like going to become a topical message disguised as a verse-by-verse exegetical verse. No, I need, I need how this all fits together. Now, he may do that, but right now, we just, we just kind of like forget the rest of the verse. Know him, right? And I agree. It, 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 there, there, these are, there's nothing wrong with the point being made, right? That this shows the majesty of Christ because this is not about Paul being known or Paul trying to know himself. It's about him knowing him. That's a good point, but I still need to know what in the world does the verse mean? And he's thinking here about the majesty of Christ. Now, prior to Paul's conversion, he had a a very wrong view of the Savior. His concept of the Lord Jesus was all wrong. He viewed Jesus of Nazareth as being an imposter, as being a blasphemer, as being a false teacher, as being a false prophet, as being a, a blind leader of the blind. But that all changed one day as you all know, on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, whenever he was going to persecute the church, he makes mention of this already in in verse number 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. And that's what he was going to Damascus to do. He had got legal authority. 
legal power to bind the Christians, to put them into prison. And that's what he was purposed in his heart to do. And you know the story that on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, suddenly a light shone from heaven. Saul fell to the ground. He heard a voice speaking, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul knew that that was the voice of the Lord because he said, Who art thou, Lord? He knew where the voice was coming from. It wasn't coming from the earth. It was coming from heaven. And he knew in some sense that it was a voice either of the Lord or a voice from the Lord. And then the answer came, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And in a moment of time, Paul realized that all of my concepts and all of my thoughts about Jesus of Nazareth, all of them have been wrong. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. He is the Messiah. He is sovereign. He is victorious. He has risen from the grave. He has ascended into heaven. He is risen. He's ascended. He's reigning. He is God Almighty. That's what he realized. Having come to that recognition, he just says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He just cast his life completely at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ever since that hour, on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul has been taken up with the majesty of Jesus Christ. If you go back to chapter 2, have these wonderful words, and I think every Christian should Study them, if it's possible, memorize them, learn them off by heart. They'll help you in witnessing, they'll help you in worship, they'll help you in working for the Lord. Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And here's the majesty of our Savior, who being in the form of God, there's his deity, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, co-equal and co-eternal, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. There's Christ's humiliation. There's his incarnation. All of this is wonderful theology. All of this is wonderful doctrine. It's all great. Makes for a great sermon. Doesn't do anything at the moment to help us understand Philippians 3.10. He's just taken the verse and just said, all the, these are just four separate goals that you need to have in your Christian life. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I know that it, okay, even if you make it these goals, there's still so many things. Like he's already acknowledged that Paul already knows Jesus better than anyone. So are you saying he's just stating that his no, his, he just has the same goal to know him? Or is this a different kind of knowledge? And if it's a different kind of knowledge, is this knowledge connected with the things that follow? Are they not connected? They, oh, it, it just seems in some ways that we're leaving the verse to go pursue a topic. That we just use the verse to get to a topic. And, and of course, our, what we want is to get to the verse. Now, it may all fit together. So I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just saying that, no, 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 no. We, what? Okay. And, and not only that, if this is the goal, he's really not even giving us any tangible ideas of what it means to know. Maybe he's going to give us some idea of well, how do we do that? How do we do that? There's his humanity. 
There's him coming into the world, verse number 8, and being found in fashion as a man. Still God, but took to himself a real humanity. Humbled himself. Became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. And there's the life of Christ summarized in a beautiful and a wonderful way. He became obedient unto death. He had to fulfill the law of God on our behalf to secure for us a perfect righteousness. And in light of what he did on the cross, verse number 9 says, Wherefore, or in light of this, or because of this, God also hath highly exalted him. Here's his majesty. And given him a name which... Now, I don't know if you noticed this from just analyzing preaching. We're studying Philippians 3.10. So far, we're spending more time outside of Philippians 3.10. Now, sometimes you have to do that. But is this going to help us understand Philippians 3.10? Or is this going to help us understand the personhood of the, the deity of Jesus Christ, his attributes and his personhood? Well, then this is not a sermon about Philippians 3.10. It's a topical message on the deity and personhood, characteristics and attributes of Christ, which is a great sermon to preach. Now, just so a heads up, there's no way we're going to be able to stop at the top of the hour. We're going to try to see if we can finish this. So it's going to go a little long, but I'm going to do the best I can not to interrupt too much. But at the same time, I have to interrupt or then we're just playing the sermon, which would not be right because of fair use law. I got to make sure it's critique and analysis so it's transformative, so it turns into something other than just listening to it. So I got to balance that out, but we'll see where this is going to go. Which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul's concept of Jesus has changed completely. He's God manifest in the flesh. He's the God man Christ Jesus. He's highly exalted. One day every knee will bow. And Paul says, I want to know him. Our text tonight speaks of majesty. And friends, if there's any possibility of a sinner like me coming to know this great King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then I want to know him. Everything else needs to take second place to this wonderful experience of knowing Christ and all of his majesty. We can so easily get distracted by things that are not so majestic. Things that don't really matter. We can get so taken up with this world. So taken up with ourselves. So taken up with the things of, of time and sense. Things that are legitimate. Things that have their place but are secondary issues. And like the church at Galatia, we can get so soon and so quickly removed from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul keeps it very simple. He says, I want to know him. Speaks of majesty. But it also, I believe, speaks of mercy. Paul says that I may know him. That I may know him. Now, Paul knew what he was whenever he met the Lord. Before he met the Lord, there was a sense of pride there. He mentions this earlier on in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day 
He says, if anybody thinks they could trust in the flesh, I could trust a lot more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. But whenever he met Christ, his concept not only of Christ changed, but his concept and view of himself changed because he wrote to Timothy and said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation how that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He calls himself Majesty Mercy, Philippians 2. I think he said Titus. I think Titus or Timothy, I can't remember. We're we're leaving Philippians 3.10. And we're just topically now just like, and he's, uh, I don't know if all of these are going to start with an M, majesty, mercy, all right? These are all the preaching techniques that you're, you know, got to have those points, start with the same letter, all great. All right, so Paul, when he says, I want to know him, he speaks of God, of Christ's majesty and of Christ's mercy, right? is 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 that what's going on in Philippians 3:10? Hey guys, I want you to know of Christ's majesty and his mercy. Is that the goal of Philippians 3:10? I don't think that's the intention here. Oh, I I, I okay. All right, we'll keep listening. We'll keep listening. The chief of sinners. And yet he says, "I can know him." And so our verse tonight speaks of mercy. 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, But I obtained mercy. He says, before was a persecutor. Before was a blasphemer. Didn't even know it. But I obtained mercy. Someone who was once so proud. Someone who was once so legalistic. Someone who was once so self-righteous. Someone who was once an actual persecutor of Christ and a hater of the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. All of a sudden he says, I want to know him. And I can know him. And that speaks of mercy. Mercy. Friends, tonight do we realize that this Christian life is all because of mercy and all because. I want you to understand this. Everything he's saying is biblically sound, theologically sound. It is wonderful. It is great. It is awesome. But I don't think it's helping me in any way, shape, or form understand Philippians 3.10. It's connection to verse 9. It's connection to verse 11. I, I don't understand anything about the verse. I, I just know that he took a phrase and now it's preaching a topical message. Um, and, and, I, and he's not even telling me if this is, if Philippians 3.10 is the goal of every Christian, that your goal is to know him, he's not expressed, he's not even told me yet, how do I know him? And remember, this is Paul supposedly wanting to know him, but Paul already knew him more than any person on the, pl- on the planet. Prior to writing this, even according to the sermon, I think other than he said the Apostle John. Well, okay, well then, what what is going on here? Like, I don't understand. 
of grace. And as we live the Christian life, the only thing that keeps us following after God is that same mercy and that same grace. That's why the Christian needs to be at the mercy seat often. That's why we need to be at the throne of grace often. But nevertheless, our text speaks of mercy. John Newton wrote that amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Written on his headstone are the words along the lines, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy and grace of our Lord, saved and redeemed and restored, and ordained to preach the faith that he had once labored to destroy. And this hater of God came to know Jesus Christ, and it was all because of mercy. Now, friends, tonight, naturally speaking, we are ignorant. Naturally speaking, we're blind. Naturally speaking, we're rebels, we're enemies, we're lawbreakers. But the Scripture says that Jesus Christ hath reconciled us to God by the sacrifice of himself. And a Christian is a person who does know Christ and always can know Christ in a deeper way. Because of mercy. John chapter 17, 3, the Savior said and prayed to his Father in heaven, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What is being a Christian? Being a Christian is being brought into fellowship and relationship with the Savior that we rebelled against and sinned against from the day of our birth until the moment that he converted us. Our text tonight speaks of majesty. If salvation is knowing him, then this has to be a knowing that's different than that knowing. So what's the difference between the knowing in Philippians 3.10 and just this is eternal life, knowing, then there's a different, this has to be a different knowing here. What is this knowing? Right? So we got majesty, we got mercy. It speaks of mercy, I. But it also speaks of mystery. That I Alright, so now see this this is using all the typical preaching techniques, right? Okay. So we break it, we're gonna make this very practical and applicable. Boom, even though this possibly covers up actually trying to figure out the meaning of the verse. And then we've got to make sure all of our points start with the same letter. This is typical in preaching. Nothing necessarily wrong with it, but it but it's problematic if at the end you you got a good sermon. But you didn't understand the text. I want everyone to understand there's a difference between a wonderful, great sermon and learning the verse. They're not the same thing. They should be the same thing. But in many cases, they can't be the same thing. You know why? Learning the verse doesn't always make a good sermon. <laughs> learning the, figuring out the verse is messy. And it's like, well, maybe it could be, well, what about it? It's not so nice and put together and organized with everything, starting with the same letter. It's not. And I know, but that's why most Christians want this, this kind of preaching. I don't, I, for me personally, I don't want this kind of preaching. I want to know the verse. I want to know the verse. That's what I want to know. I want to know the verse. May know 
him. Now, the word mystery is a word that is often found within the pages of Holy Scripture. Mark chapter 4.11 speaks about the mystery of... Please note, this is supposed to be an exposition of Philippians 3.10, right? We have the word majesty, which doesn't appear in Philippians 3.10. We have the word mercy, which doesn't appear in Philippians 3.10. We have the word mystery, which doesn't appear in Philippians 3.10. But this is supposedly a study of Philippians 3.10. Now, I know some of you are like, you're being critical. I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just trying to point out this is something to pay attention to in preaching. You can get a great sermon. That is 1,000% theologically correct. I would agree with everything he has said. Everything he's saying is wonderful. It is godly. It is biblical. It's great. But you know how you could have preached this? Hey, tonight, we're going to talk about knowing Christ. And we're going to talk about some things we need to know about Christ. We need to know his majesty. We need to know his mercy. And we need to know the mystery See, now you're not bound by Philippians 3.10. Now you can just explore each one of these separate as a topical message. And it doesn't obscure because everyone will leave this church going, we study Philippians 3.10. I understand. So explain Philippians 3.10 to me. Well, knowing Christ means majesty. No, 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 no. I need to know Philippians 3.10. Well, that's what Philippians 3. No, that's not in Philippians 3.10. It has nothing to do with Philippians 3.10. But that a lot of times when you start arguing with people about a sermon uh, or about preaching or not even about a preaching, about a text, a scripture, you'll see that. You're like, wait, 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 wait. What are you saying? Like, it, it's, that's what the verse is. I'm like, no, I don't need the points of a sermon you heard. Did you study the text? All right. Everything here is wonderful and great. I am not criticizing what's being said. What I'm offering up is an analysis that says, we want Philippians 3.10, and right now we're not getting it. So, okay, we got majesty, we got uh, uh, mercy, now we have mystery. Of the kingdom of God. Ephesians 1.9 speaks about the mystery of his will. Ephesians 3. Please note he has to keep going to other passages to find verses that fits his little outline. He's got to go to verses that seem to indicate God's Christ's majesty. He's got to go to other verses that speak of Christ's mercy. And he's got to go to other verses to speak of mystery. When you have to go to other verses to prove the point of your sermon, when you're supposedly teaching me Philippians 3.10, that's a good indicator that you're not teaching me Philippians 3.10. And again, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just trying to say this. This is just a lesson in listening to preaching. It's just a lesson. And the the lesson is this, not so that you can criticize, so that you can tell yourself, I need to go home and study Philippians 3.10 because I didn't really study it in church today. That's that's all. That's all. I'm, I'm not saying you're to criticize. I'm not saying you cause trouble. I'm not saying you talk, talk bad. I'm not saying you do any of that. I'm just saying you have to tell yourself that wasn't an actual study of the text. It was a study of a topic, which is okay. Four speaks about the mystery of Christ. Ephesians six nineteen speaks about the mystery of the gospel. First Timothy three nine speaks about the mystery of faith. 1 Timothy 3.16 speaks about the mystery of godliness. The word of God also speaks about the mystery of iniquity. Now the word mystery in our English language comes, I believe, from the Greek word itself, mysterion. 
which isn't it interesting that he's looking up the Greek word and other passages about a word that's not used in Philippians 3.10 instead of looking up like, I don't know, that I may know. Wouldn't that be a good Greek word since this whole sermon is about supposedly Philippians 3.10? What? Don't we have to still establish what? He's already told us Paul knew Christ better than anyone. So then why is Paul here talking about knowing him? Right? I mean, wouldn't that be good to do? Right? You don't need to go to seminary to learn that. You don't need to go to Bible college to learn that. In fact, one of the uh, one of the listeners who hasn't been to Bible college or seminary was like, knowing here, I think they even said, don't we need to look up the word knowing, the Greek word for knowing? <laughs> yes, we do. And you know why most likely they called that into question before maybe this sermon? Is because sometimes as pastors, we're so focused on a sermon that we forget the text. We sacrifice the text for the sake of a sermon. I, look, I'm not saying this in judgment. I'm saying this as someone who's been guilty of it, right? Now, we've got to finish this. We There's just no way I can break this one message into multiple parts. So I know it's going to go long. I know I'm going to get emails. People say that your podcast goes way too long. Look, I, I don't know if you realize this, you can pause or stop and come back and listen at a later time. I, I wish I could do it in 15 minutes. Some people are like, I can't listen to you because they're too long. I, I, I don't know what to say. Dude, I, here we go. This means or denotes something that was previously a secret to us, had to be uncovered, something that was hidden from the natural man, Something into which we must be initiated or instructed to fully understand. Did you see, the natural man does not understand the kingdom of God. The natural man does not understand the will of God. The natural man doesn't understand the person of Christ. The natural man does not accept the gospel. The natural man does not understand saving faith. And the natural man does not understand godliness or the incarnation of Christ. These things are a mystery to him. Our eyes need to be opened. Our minds and our hearts need to be opened. And these things are all a mystery. God has to open our hearts and open the eyes of our understanding before we can know them. But friends, one of the greatest mysteries of all is that I, may know him. Sinner like me can not only know about him, but come to know him personally, the Lord of glory, the creator of all things, the one who sits upon the circle of the earth, whose name is holy, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. Friends, tonight we can know him. Now, it's a mystery. And we need the Lord to open our eyes to behold him who is altogether lovely. But friends, this ought to fill us with excitement to think that there's many people in the world that we'll never know, many places in the world where we'll never go, many buildings that we'll never be in the inside of, and yet we can know him, we can know Christ. John Wesley used to say, you know, there'll be people in heaven that we never thought we'd be there. 
And also there will be people who won't be in heaven that we thought would be there. But he says the greatest mystery of all is that we'll be there ourselves. Because in this world we knew something of him. Our verse tonight speaks of majesty. It speaks of mercy. It speaks of mystery. It also speaks of mentality. This is just following the preaching template, how to put together a sermon, doing all the same letters. I still don't know anything about Philippians 3.10. I know zero about this. This is a series on Philippians 3.10, disguised as an exegetical study of Philippians 3.10, or it's disguised as an exegetical study of Philippians 3.10, but in reality, it's simply a topical study that has nothing to do with Philippians 3.10, and I still don't understand anything about it. So, I, we're, we're going to try to make it to the end of this. Now, again, everything he's saying, I agree with. It's, it's, it's all wonderful. It's great. Praise God. We, we're in complete agreement theologically. Just, I need to know the Philippians 3.10. That's what, that's what I need to understand. That I may know him. Speaking here about the knowledge of God and Christ Jesus. And it's vital in these days that we have the correct doctrine, the correct knowledge of Christ and the correct knowledge of God. We can't know Christ more than we know about him. The more we know about him, the more we know of him. We were singing earlier, a brother asked to sing that hymn, more about Jesus would I know. And the more we know about him, the more we can know of him. Hosea 4, 6, God says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And we can't believe more than we know. Doctrine's important. Theology is important. It gets a bad press. It's undermined. It's viewed as being dry. It's viewed as being legalistic sometimes. It's viewed sometimes as being divisive. And it's viewed as being secondary. And very often, the thought is placed upon sincerity. But God has given us this book for a reason. Paul wrote to the New Testament churches for a reason. They were made up of people who did know the Lord, who were saved by grace, but Paul instructed them more fully. I'm, I'm getting now more confused because he's, this is about Paul saying that he wants to know him. Now it's talking about that we study so that we can know about him, so that we can know. But no, this is about Paul. And you've already said that Paul already knew about Christ more than any other person on earth. So what, what is this simply like, hey, your goal is to know him. So study theology and study your Bible that let's I'm, I'm, I'm we're going to do this just really quick. I know we probably. All right, here we go. I'm going to open up the interlinear. Let's just go to it really quick because we've got to at least address this. All right. So I'm going to go to the interlinear, that I may know. That I may know is this Greek word. Everybody knows it, right? Strong's G, 1097. Gnosko. 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 Now, Gnosko is a Jewish idiom for sexual intercourse. This is an intimate, intimate, intimate knowledge. You can, it's not about knowing about, it's knowing in the most intimate way, all right? 
this, uh, there's uh, Strong's definition here is uh, Gnosko, you see, it's, uh, let me see here, to know absolutely and a great variety of applications with many implications uh, as follows with others not thus clearly expressed. Allow, be aware, feel, have, know, perceive, be resolved, can speak, be sure, understand. It's used 223 times. It would take us forever to try to go through all of them. But to learn to know, to come to know, to get a knowledge of, perceive, feel, to become known, to know, understand, perceive, have knowledge of, to understand, to become acquainted with, to know. So it can be, it seems like there's all kinds of different possible implications. But it does and can be used as well to know in the most intimate way. Well, if Paul already knows him better than anyone, as this sermon is already attested to, then Paul can't just be saying, hey, my goal is just to know a little bit more. No, this knowledge that he seeks has to be connected to the things that follow. I want to know him, and the way I want to know him is through, through experiencing the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of the suffering, and to be conformable in his death. So the, the know here is connected to those things. It has to be. It's the only thing that makes any sense. And to me, trying to make that experiential on this earth doesn't seem to work. I think the only way we're going to truly know the power of the resurrection the fellowship of his suffering and made conformable in his death is when I am resurrected bodily. And then guess what? I am conformable in his death in the sense that I'm completely dead. Now the old me no longer exists. I'm in a glorified body, no more a sinful nature. And, and guess what? All I'm connected to his suffering because all of the benefits from his suffering, I'm now experiencing completely. No more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more anything. In other words, in a sense, I've truly died to self, and now I'm resurrected completely in his likeness I am I, as he is in that sense. This has to be po ultimately pointing to, I want to know that, like I've come to faith, the previous verses, I've come to faith, I've experienced, I've been, I haven't experienced, I've been the righteousness of Christ has been given to me, imputed to me. Now I want to know these things. And the way he's going to know these things has to be the ultimate resurrection. Again, the and, and I'm not coming up with this. Someone who was listening came up with this idea. And I think they're onto something. We still got to flesh it out. And I'm willing to challenge it. But it's like, you know, hey, guys, your goal is to know him and you need to study more. What? That? But you already, this is about Paul, whom you already said, already knew him better than anyone. So then it can't just be, hey, Paul. So Paul's like, guys, I need to study more. He, he's been taught by Christ, right? He was taught by Christ. He, he's been taken up into heaven and given a vision. He, I mean, all the things Paul experienced, and he's like, hey, guys, you know what? My goal is to, to study more. I, that doesn't make any sense in the context. And he said, in understanding, be men. The more we know about Christ, the more we will find ourselves able to trust him. Our lack of faith, our doubts, our worries, our concerns, very often stem from the fact that we do not know him. See, this is becoming about us. It quickly has forgotten Paul, quickly forgotten context, quickly forgotten anything. And it's about you do, you do this, you do this, you do this. As we should, and we do not know as much about him 
as we might. Now, whenever we think of mentality and we think of knowledge, there's first of all, we've mentioned already, doctrinal knowledge. Paul said to Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. The Lord Jesus said, search the scriptures, for in them you think that ye have life, and they are they that testify of me. Scripture says, in understanding be men. Second John 9 speaks about the doctrine of Christ. And it's important tonight that we know who he is. And we also know what he has done. Because in our world tonight, there are those who preach another gospel and they preach another Jesus. You'll find them in the streets of this very town. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and some of the extreme charismatics and they're, they're really preaching another gospel. They're preaching another Christ, a Christ void of deity. And they call into question his eternality. I'll de deny his resurrection. And they'll deny essentially his atoning work and his ability to save completely. Even some of the big charismatic churches. And we can look at them and people say, well, they're doing a lot of good. And they might be doing a lot of charitable things and helping people. But folks, the theology and the doctrines of many of these places, their underlying theology is weighed in the balances and is found wanting. And it's so important tonight that we know who Jesus Christ really is. That's what Paul's speaking, or speaking about here in Philippians chapter 2. Those verses we said before, if you can get a grasp of them, Philippians 2 verses 5 down to 11, study them, get a reference Bible and compare and contrast those verses with other verses in the Bible and get a real grip and a real handle doctrinally, mentally of who Christ is. There's a doctrinal knowledge, but there's also an experimental knowledge which is equally important. Sometimes people put a lot of emphasis on an experience-based Christianity. And they put their experience above the Word of God. And if they have experienced something, they take it for granted that that experience comes from God. And we need to be very, very careful about that. Not every experience that a person might have, or emotion or feeling that a person may have, don't take it for granted that it's from God. To the law and to the prophets, if they speak not according to the prophecy of this book, it's because there's no light in them. But saying that, an experiential Christianity and knowledge of Christ is vital. Can I challenge us all tonight in my own heart as well? How much do we really know of Christ by experience? We say that he answers prayer because the Bible teaches us that. But have we experienced that? Do we know it in our own lives to be true? We say that we believe that he gives grace and his grace is sufficient for us. And we believe it because it's in the Bible. But have we experienced that grace? Whenever trial comes, adversity comes, affliction comes, are we able to experience the grace of God, answers to prayer? Do we experience guidance? Do we experience his presence in our lives? Do we experience his power? Do we experience fellowship with him?
Now, this becomes a subjective, subjective thing where I'm trying to figure out, okay, did I experience that? Did I experience that? This is very subjective, and he's going into directions that are not even mentioned in Philippians 3.10, which is this, again, is supposed to be an exposition of, which has already left Philippians 3.10 27 miles in the past. I don't even know in the distance, I should say, behind it. And it's just, what? This is so just now, I don't even know what this has to do with the actual text. And that is what, oh, mm, mm, mm. I think Paul is saying he's, he's, he's been, he has a righteousness now by faith. And now he wants to truly experience these. But I think this experience that he wants to have only occurs in the resurrection. And that is we've truly experienced because we can claim all day we are experiencing it, but, it, but it's very subjective. We, we will truly experience the power of the resurrection when we're resurrected. We will truly experience the fellowship of his suffering. If we go with John Gill's understanding, that means we truly experience the benefits of his suffering. We will when there's no more sin, no more death, no more anything. He died to defeat death, right? He died to take care of sin. All of that will be truly experienced, not now, because I'm still going to physically die. Not now, because I still continue to sin. But then I will, and then I'll be conformable to his death, because now it will be no longer me. I'll be made like him. That is all going to happen in the resurrection. Not, and... I, we still could be wrong in our theory, but it's better than... I don't even know what this is so far, okay? And it, it's because it's it's turned into something other than an exposition of the text. Do we experience his presence with us? Do we experience his speaking voice, even in meetings like this? Do we come out with a head knowledge or a heart experience? They're both equally important. This verse speaks of mentality. This verse also speaks, this text also speaks of modesty. Paul says that I may know him. You know what Paul's saying there? He says, I know him, but I don't know him as well as I want to. I want to know him more. I want to know him in a deeper way. Now, this is the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest Christian that ever lived, the greatest soul winner that there ever was, the greatest theologian that there ever was, the greatest church planter that there ever was. And he talks about uh, being circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He talks about his zeal. He talks about his righteousness. He talks about keeping the law. Second Corinthians chapter 6, he makes mention of the same things. If you think all of this uh, things that this man has been through, he says, but in all things, 2 Corinthians 6, 4, approving ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, and necessities, and distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watchings, fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by the word of truth, by the power of God, and he goes on in 2 Corinthians 11 to talk about everything that has been through for the sake and cause of Jesus Christ. Labors, stripes, prisons, deaths, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, journeys, perils, weariness, painfulness, watchings, hunger, thirst, fastings, cold and nakedness. And he says, but you know something? In all of these things, when I am weak, then I'm strong. And I've proved the grace of God in all of these situations. But you know something? 
He says, I want to know him more. And he's writing here towards the end of his days, towards the end of his life. Philippians 3, 1, finally, my brethren. Here's a man that's coming to the end of the race. See, if, if, if he knows him all of these ways better than anybody else, then I don't know how you can just say, well, he wants to know him a little bit better. Well, if he's at the end of his life, he wants to truly know these things. Where is he going to know them? Ultimately, in his resurrection and glorification, then he will truly know these things. That's how these will be known. I, I think that I... I He's almost walking me directly into our theory. He's almost pushing me to our theory. He's not pulling me away from our theory. And I still say that it's our hypothesis and our theory because we haven't proven it yet. But he's definitely pushing me towards it. He's not pulling me away from it. Here's a man that's coming to the end of his course who knows the Lord more than anybody else does. And yet his desire is that I might know him. I think Paul's hinting at it here. I've only scratched the surface. And that speaks of modesty. I want to know him more. I don't know him as well as I want to. I don't know Christ as well as I should. I don't know him as well as I could. But he says, I want to know him more. Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint, yet I love thee and adore, O oh, for grace to love thee more. The modesty of the Apostle Paul. My folks, if the Apostle Paul took his place as a person who needed at the end of his life with everything that has been through a man anointed with the Spirit of God in a mighty, mighty way, there's no room for boasting in your life or mine. How much more do we need to know the Lord? Boasting excluded. Pride I abase, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. John Flavel, the great Puritan, said, They that know God will be humble. They that know themselves cannot be proud. They that know God will be humble. I, I, I just kind of laugh. They that know God will be humble. Well, I know God, therefore I'm humble. But if you know that you're humble, okay, never mind. All right, we can get into a whole discussion about that. But but okay, but so far, we, we still know anything about Philippians 3.10. And we've only got just a few minutes left. So we're almost at the end and we're not. But I just want you to make sure you understand at least where he's leading us is that our theory makes more sense because there's no more, like what, what more knowledge can he get? The only knowledge that he has to be looking for is a knowledge that goes beyond and it has to be connected to the three things that fall. I want to know him and how is he want to know him in those three ways. Those three things cannot be connected from this. This is the problem of he's preaching a great sermon, doctrinal, convicting, well-spoken, articulate, pulling in great quotes from, from different things and from hymns. He's doing everything you're supposed to do as far as preaching is concerned. But let me say it again. So much preaching actually blinds us from understanding the verse. We still don't understand the verse at all because this is not an exposition of the verse. It's a topical method 
a topical, not a topical method of study. It's a topical study of basically, hey, knowing Christ involves these concepts. They that know themselves cannot be proud. And here we see this text in it, there's modesty. Paul realizes with everything that he has been through, approaching the end of his life, he realizes, you know something, there's still so much more. And friends, it'll take us all eternity to really understand the fullness of his redemption and to accept. It's going to take eternity to know. So then I, to me, this is, he's literally driving. He's like, put us in the car, like driving us right to our theory that the way that what the knowledge here, these things that's talking about can only be known in eternity, which again, I didn't come up with this. One of the listeners did, which is, I love this podcast because we have really smart people listening. So I, I, I'm, we haven't proven it yet, but he's, he's doing, he's like, He's almost saying, no, go with your theory. Go with your theory because I'm not going to try to figure it out, okay? Our theory could be wrong. By the time we get to the next sermon review, I don't think we'll do it tonight, probably tomorrow, um, I may be saying, you know what? Our our theory was completely wrong. But as of right now, we're staying with it. Let's Let's finish this up. Just a few minutes. Explore the unsearchable riches of Christ. Our text also speaks of maturity, that I may know him. The thought there is, the thought of progression. It is God's will for every Christian to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is abundantly clear about this very thing. And it speaks of maturity. Look at what Paul says in verse number 12 of this wonderful chapter. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. You know what he's saying there? He says, I haven't arrived yet. He says, I want to continue to grow. I want to continue to mature. You see, so often, folks, the Word of God speaks about perfection. That's a word that we shouldn't be afraid of because the Bible speaks about it many, many times. For example, the the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, and verse number 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, that is the simple things, the foundational things, he says we need to move on from those things. Let us go on unto perfection. Let us go on unto perfection. And then the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and verse number 28, whom we preach, warning every man. Look at how much of this is not, he has left, he has spent so much of this sermon on Philippians 3.10, Philippians 3.10, outside of Philippians 3.10, because it's not about Philippians 3.10, it's about a topic, and... uh, Maybe the only thing I can get you, I thought we were going to gain some understanding in Philippians 3.10. Maybe the only thing I can demonstrate to you is how so many times you are not actually, you're, 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 you aren't being, I don't want to say deceived. You're being, you're being misled into thinking you're studying a passage of scripture when all you're being given is a sermon, which in many cases, they're not the same thing. And teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect. In Christ Jesus. James chapter 1 and verse number 4, chapter we've been looking at in our Lord's Day services, 
But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. James 3, 2, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. And of course, whenever people read that word perfect, they come up with all sorts of wonderful and spurious doctrines, sinless perfection, full sanctification, the eradication of the sin nature, getting the root out. And they say that's what being perfect is. It means that you're sinlessly perfect. But don't forget that John said, if any man say he, he is without sin, he makes God a liar and the truth is not in him. John makes it clear that we're still sinners after our conversion. But the word perfect that is translated in all of these different verses that we have cited is a, a Greek word, teleos, which means to come to a full age. It means to come to a place of maturity. To come to a, a place of completion, to have a full-orbed Christianity and to grow to the place of maturity. That was the problem in the church at Corinth. Paul says, you're still babes. I, I desire to feed you with meat, not with milk, but I've had to come again and give you the milk. He says, you haven't grown. And yet the Scripture exhorts us to grow in grace and to come to a place of, of maturity. And that's what Paul is desiring here in this very verse of Scripture, that I may know him that I may grow to full stature, that I might be as mature and as holy and as Christ-like as it is possible for a sinner saved by grace on this earth to be, to coin McShane's great prayer. Do you remember in John's Gospel, chapter 14, shortly before the Lord went to the cross, those very familiar words we said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house. Or many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then Thomas says, well, Lord, how can we know the way? I, again, we're, I, I, I don't, it, this, it would be hard to convince anyone this is an actual sermon on Philippians 3.10, other than the fact that so much preaching is done this way. And again, I'm not trying to criticize the the sermon, because everything in the sermon is, is right and doctrinal and theo theological. It's just, we, we don't know anything about Philippians 3.10, and it's not done any, it's not even helped us in any way, shape, or form to understand what is actually going on in the text. And I know I keep saying that over and over, but trust me, I want to be done as much as you want to be done, because currently it's 106 degrees outside, and in this room, I cannot have the air conditioning on when I'm broadcasting live because, well, it makes too much noise, so I'm literally about to pass out. But we're going to finish it. We're just probably three minutes away. Stay with me, and then we'll wrap this up. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then Philip pipes up and he asks a few questions. And in John 14, 9, do you remember what the Lord said to Philip after almost three years of Philip being in his immediate presence? Have I been so long time with thee, Philip? And yet hast thou not known me? Gentle rebuke. Philip, you've heard all my sermons. You've been in my presence for three years. You've witnessed so many of my miracles. You've seen my character. 
and Philip, you've been following now for three years, but Philip, you don't really know me. You have to grow, Philip. You have to mature. Would the Lord say the same to us tonight? Have I been so long time with thee? Have I been in your heart and in your life and in your home for three years? Maybe for 13 years? Maybe for 33 years or even more? And the Lord would come and say to us, Have I been so long time with thee? And yet hast thou not known me? Our text speaks of majesty, mercy, mystery, mentality, modesty, maturity. But in closing, it also speaks of mastery. Paul wants to really get a handle on this subject. He realizes this is the calling of God in my life. And I want to be the very best that I can be. There's a fella who started working in the place where I go to get my hair cut. The only reason I go is because it's the cheapest place that I can find and you don't need an appointment and it's usually not too busy. And this guy was cutting my hair and I don't know, you can judge for yourselves whether he does a good job or not. But he said to me, just I said to him, how long have you been at this caper for? And he said, since Christmas. I thought he was going to say about 15 or 20 years and I was his guinea pig. But he says, I want to be the very best that I can be. You speak to someone that's involved in athletics or they're, they're maybe studying to be a doctor or they're learning a trade. And if they've got a heart for it, And if they feel that that's their calling in life, they'll generally want to be the very best that they can be. They want to master their subject. They want to gain the master in their calling. But folks, we have got the highest calling in all the world. Called to be saints. Called to be servants. Called to be followers of Christ. Called to take the light of the gospel to a world that's perishing. Called to know Christ. Paul realizes this is my calling in life. And whenever all is said and done, this is all that matters. And whenever I stand before Christ on that day, I want to have mastered this subject to the very best of all of the ability that God gives me. It speaks of mastery. To master his interest in Christ. Now, I believe that the Apostle Paul was a man that probably had a, a passing interest anyway. And in athletics, he, he makes many sporting references Uh, In his epistles, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he he says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? All of them are running, but only one receives the prize. And then he says to these believers, he says, You run that ye might obtain. Strive to to win the race. There's such a thing, I I believe, as, as, as provoking each other. Some Christians provoke each other in the wrong way, but the Bible says that we're to provoke one another unto good works. Big brethren, man that I used to work with in Lisburn, he says, remembers a fella coming to him and, and speaking about another Christian. He says, that fella has been provoking me all day. And he says, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And he goes, no, he's been provoking me by his life, by his testimony, by his Christ-likeness. And this is what Paul's laying down here. He says, run that ye, that ye might obtain. And every man that striveth for mastery is... This is almost like a separate sermon from Philippians 3.10. So, so basically, this sermon is coming down to this, right? This is basically how he's interpreting Philippians 3.10. Paul wants us to 
know him. And so we must strive to know him. He hasn't told us how to do so. So basically it comes down to study more and then try to know him in an experiential way. Doesn't explain how. So you just need to know him more. So Philippians 3.10 is about Paul telling you that you need to know Christ more, even though Paul doesn't mention you, me, or anybody else. He mentions himself. And not only that, you've already established that Paul already knows Christ better than everyone else. So, And then you've established that he's at the end of his life, and you've not even in any way, shape, or form even tried to connect the knowing with the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. So literally, I have no no better understanding of this verse. This is an example where the sermon literally... The sermon takes place of the actual text. The sermon gets in the way of the text. He's used all of the different preaching techniques that you learn. He's got everything starting with the same letter. All of that. Wonderful. Nothing he said was doctrinally incorrect. Nothing he said was wrong. Everything was fine. The only problem is we didn't actually study Philippians 3.10 which is what our goal was. However, in an indirect way, he's pushed us to the hypothesis, the theory that we have put forth to interpret Philippians 3.10, and we will continue to work on it through this series. Of, and we're going to review a bunch of sermons, but we'll continue to work on it. Here is our contention, and then we'll end the sermon. All right. Paul, he's a, he has been the, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to him by faith. We see that in the previous verses, right? Paul's thrown out everything else, his righteousness, everything else. He's thrown that out. He now has the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith. And now he says that I want to know that because by faith, because he has been saved, he wants to ultimately know Christ. And the way he will ultimately know Christ is through the through experiencing the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and being made conformable, un, conformable, conformable unto his death. Our theory, our thesis, our hypothesis is this. The only way you're truly going to experience that, you can try to say you can experience it in some way in this life, but it just doesn't seem to work experiential. It just seems to be, what does that mean? And we can't really define it, but we know this. When I die, boom, I'm going to experience the power of the resurrection because even though I physically die, I will live to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. I will experience the true power of resurrection. At some point, my body will come out of the ground and be united with me and there'll be a glorified body. Then I will truly experience the power of the resurrection. That's the true power. Oh, Christians come around claiming that, no, I've got that power working in me today and yet you continue to sin. So then how much power do you have? That just becomes, again, subjective, questionable. But then I will truly experience, I will truly know him because I will truly experience the power of the resurrection. Boom, that makes sense. Fellowship of his suffering. This one's a little bit more difficult, but if we go with John Gill's idea, which I think is very brilliant, is that, no, I have the fellowship with his suffering in the sense that I fellowship in his suffering in the sense of I benefit from his suffering. When will I truly, truly experience the benefit of his suffering? Well, when I 
and, and resurrected and a glorified body, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. Christ in his suffering defeated death. Christ in his suffering defeated sin. And I will not truly experience that until after my death, after my resurrection, and my glorification. Be conformable to his death? Well, then at that moment, truly me as now, I will die because my old nature will be gone and I will no longer be like me. I will be like him. This is Paul saying, I have, by faith, I have the imputed righteousness of Christ, and this is what I want to know. And how is he ultimately going to know these things? In the resurrection. That's our thesis. That's our theory. Because, and this sermon did nothing to distract us from that theory. Now we'll let him finish. Temperate in all things. He says, do you see that athlete? that wants to be in the top of his game and is striving for mastery, he says he's temperate in all things. Know what that means? He says that means in every area of his life he's disciplined. His sleep pattern, his diet, his exercise, his social life, everything circles around about this desire to, to win the race, to master his calling in life. And then he says now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, a wreath of olive leaves. That's what they do it for, something that's corruptible. But he says, we're in this race, and we're doing it to obtain an incorruptible crown. He says, I therefore so run. I run as they run. I run that I might obtain the mastery, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, But he says, I keep under my body, I bring it into subjection, lest by any means after I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And the word castaway there means to be rejected or disqualified. Just like some of these athletes, and and they just seem to be just a wee bit got the edge in other people. And then they, they do the drugs test and they feel it and they get disqualified. But Paul says the same thing can happen to us in the Christian life doesn't mean that we lose our salvation, but it means that we do lose the reward and we lose our usefulness for God and we can become a castaway. And Paul says, that is the last thing that I want to happen to me. And the only way that I can be sure that that doesn't happen is to strive for the mastery, to be tempered in all things, to bring the body, the flesh, under subjection. How do I do it? by coming to know him in a deeper and in a fuller way. Friends, tonight, do we really know him? Is it our desire to know him more? Well, if it is, let us draw near to God tonight in prayer as never before, whether it's public or private, and let's seek the Lord and ask the Lord to reveal himself to us, in us, and through us in these days. And let us make it the desire of all of our hearts that above and beyond every other thing. That's that's where the sermon ends. I didn't cut it. I didn't cut it off. That's where it ends. Basically, hey, try harder. Work harder. You need to know him. Even though the text has nothing to do with us, it's about Paul. So basically he's saying, Paul needed to work harder. He needed to do more. He needed to learn more. He needed to study more. I mean, like, I, I don't understand. Like he... Uh, 
It, it makes no sense. No, this knowledge is connected to the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of suffering and conformable to his death. And if you try to reduce that to something we, that Paul needed to do in his life, that I... It just becomes like it's so subjective, but if it's connected to ultimately the resurrection, then it makes some kind of sense. But there is a perfect example of a sermon that got in the way of the text. And you've heard thousands of them, thousands of them, because sadly, in Bible college, seminary, and I've been to many and graduated from plenty. Sometimes it's about learning to preach a sermon and not to actually teach the text. Because sometimes teaching the text, you don't have everything starting with the same letter. You don't have three points. It's like, okay, guys, we got this idea, but it could be this. Like we're working on Philippians 3.10. All right, wait, is, is the power of the resurrection referring to justification and regeneration? And is the fellowship of the suffering dealing with sanctification? And, and is the conformable to death, is that focusing on sanctification as well? Or are those three separate things? Well, wait, how does that fit in with faith before regeneration or regeneration before faith? Now we got Ordus Salutis. We, we got a lot of things going on in this text. And when you're working through it that way, it's not the kind of sermon people want. And so a lot of people will get up and walk out of the sermon. So you've got to present it in these nice, compacted ways, which I understand, but Nobody really gets the text. So people walked out of that church or people listened to it online going, man, we studied Philippians 3.10. No, you didn't. You don't understand Philippians 3.10 anymore. Not only that, you the thesis of the sermon was your goal is to know him. He didn't even give us any real clue and how we're supposed to know him other than, I guess, read more, study more, pray more. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> But the text is about Paul, who he already acknowledged, already knows more. So Paul needed to study more? It doesn't work. All right, you can give us your theory. Newsif at yahoo.com. We would love to get your theory and your exegetical work on Philippians 3.10. We've already had one person provide us a very good theory. So far, it's the most workable the, the theory that makes the most sense, which I've already articulated now 50 times in this message, so I'm not going to do it anymore. Uh, someone said thanks. The person who said thanks is the one who came up with their theory. Yeah, I, thank you for coming up with the theory. Um, I don't know if that was helpful or not, but it was good because at least we, well, I don't know. I don't know if it was good. I, th I guess we learned a little bit about preaching, but we will continue through this series. We'll pick this up tomorrow because I don't want to spend another two hours tonight on this. So if I do another broadcast tonight, it'll be something completely different. Thank you for your patience. Sorry it went so long, but that's the way it is. But now I've got to get out of this room because it's now 107 degrees outside. This may be my last broadcast. Save yourself. Forget about me. Don't look back. This is how it is. Okay, a little bit of fun at the end, but it is 107 degrees outside right now. All right, so thanks everybody for listening. Have a great afternoon. Can't wait to hear your thoughts on Philippians 3.10. Newsif at yahoo.com. Let the meditation discussion begin so that we can try to figure out exactly the correct way to understand it in its proper context. Thanks for listening. God bless.